Hi, and welcome to this audio edition of Polygamy, What Love Is This? with host Doris Hansen. On this program, we discuss polygamy and Mormon fundamentalism from a biblical Christian perspective. We talk about the history of polygamy, its modern-day fruit, share stories from people who have escaped polygamy, and talk about current events relating to polygamy. You can learn more about the video edition of this program at whatloveisthis.tv. And now, here's Doris. Welcome to our show, Polygamy, What Love Is This? I'm your host, Doris Hansen. Our show encourages people who are in polygamy groups or who, are, or who have escaped polygamy to refuse to be held captive to the false ideas that they were taught and to check out everything that they taught you to find the truth because the truth indeed does set us free. Before we get started, we do help people leave polygamy and we can help you or someone that you know if they're wanting information about how to get out. You can call our toll-free Free number it is 877-425-9993 and we can have a private confidential discussion about your situation you can also go to our website shieldandrefuge.org for more information about our ministry and if you have any questions or, or about any of our shows or if you'd like to be a guest you can email us at email at whatloveisthis.tv TV. Also, audio versions of our program are available to download. You can go to our website's main page or to soundcloud.com slash whatloveisthis for information or you, uh, for, or, and also you can download on iTunes podcast. This is part two of our interview with the daughter of the infamous polygamous leader, Erville LeBaron. She grew up in a polygamous family. She has over 50 siblings. Her father had 13 wives, and she's written a book about her life, how she got away from the group, and how she has been healed from the trauma she suffered. So again, for part two of our interview, I would like to introduce and welcome our special guest, Anna LeBaron, author of The Polygamous Daughter. Thank you, Doris. It's a pleasure to be here. And thank you again for coming and spending time with us. It's, it's a real pleasure to talk about these things, and especially since I, 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 I can relate to so much of what you wrote in your mm -hmm. book. It's a very good book. Thank you. Um, you write several times in your book about the religious education, which included how you were being persecuted because you were God's people. Now, we mm -hmm. talked about this in, in the first interview, but we'll talk a little bit more about it now. Uh, you were God's special and chosen people, you said you couldn't understand why you would be persecuted if you were such special people. Mm -hmm. uh, and again, uh, I was from the Kingston group and we were taught the same thing. <laughs> all, the, all the other polygamy groups and, and the Mormon church were all not God's people, right. but we were. Right. And we were privileged, special to be counted in, as part of the Kingston group and that we needed to be sure we stayed there. Right. You know, if right. we wanted to mm -hmm. be uh, uh, to ple be pleasing God. Um, and so as you grew older, you 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 question why are you being treated this way if if you're God's special people? Did that ever connect uh, while you were still in the group or was it when you were older that you got away that you knew? It was when I was much older that I began to see what had been a part of my life and in, in the history mm -hmm. part of my life and the history of polygamy as part of the way I was raised and um, groomed eventually to become a sister wife yeah. to an, a man with multiple wives. Yeah. So it was in, in my teen years that I began to see those things. Yeah. As a young child, it, it was the only thing I knew. So. The word polygamy was just 
something that was normal. Yeah. Living the life was uh -huh. normal. Yeah, it's, it's and, all you know. And we weren't allowed to make friends with other people that weren't part of our group, so there wasn't an opportunity, or a lot of opportunity, to see anything different. Right. Mm -hmm. and, so, and the only difference we were able to see, we went to public school, but other than that, we saw nothing except for the polygamy, the multiple wives, mm -hmm. their church, the way right. they did everything. Well, we went to public school as well, and so we, we would have opportunities to see a little bit from the outside perspective. But we couldn't make friends. We could not we make, make friends. friends. We weren't allowed to go to friends' exactly. houses. They weren't, we weren't allowed to bring them to our house. So mm -hmm. I had what I, would, uh, ref what I now refer to as at-school friends. Yeah. You know, they, they yeah. were my friends at school only and yeah. well, no and inviting and no sleepovers That's exactly happened. how it was with us. There, there was no way that there was any personal relationship going mm -hmm. on outside of the school atmosphere. In, in Chapter 14, you talk about going gardening. <laughs> it was a code word. Explain what the code word was for and just exactly what were you doing? <laughs> well, um, gardening was a euphemism for a practice that um, we, we utilized to help supplement our nutrition. We lived in abject poverty, and so at night, when we were done with a long 12-hour day of work, usually, mm -hmm. even as children, we were working for you know long days, we would go behind the grocery store and back up to the dumpster. And because I was um, old enough to be able to um, know what I was doing and know what to look for, but y small enough to be able to be put inside the dumpster, yeah. we would get inside there and scrounge around for discarded dairy products <laughs> that were had expirations, expiration dates where that the store couldn't sell in the store. And sometimes they were still edible. Mm -hmm. And so we would also um, look for produce, you know, fruits and vegetables, which is why we were able to call it gardening. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> It's interesting. I, I got a kick out of that. Uh, we didn't my family personally didn't do this gardening, mm -hmm. but they do it in the Kingston group. They've done it for years and years and years, and they're still doing it. But you called it elegant food, and, yeah. and, and you called it overripe oranges mm -hmm. and not quite frozen ice cream and, and yeah. super ripe bananas, right. and, and it was elegant. You know what? I know exactly what you're talking about because it would have been for me too. Right. It Other than that, elegant food. You know, we ate mush a lot. Yeah, absolutely. You know, just whatever type of uh, grain that could be. Uh, boiled and yes. <laughs> <laughs> and then you know the watered down powdered milk added to it. Oh my! It sounds like we, there might have been so liaison if you found a, between your family and ours. It's so if you found so a gallon of milk that was not spoiled, you know you that was oh my gosh like heaven getting that cream. And that's why you call it elegant. Yeah, mm -hmm. it was very yummy when you, you, when your options were very limited. <laughs> exactly. That. Yes, that is true. My first <clears> taste <throat> of a yo play yogurt came from, from the, the dumpster. dumpster. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they go uh, and and they'll even go to some of the food stores just at closing time. Mm -hmm. Make sure they get there just at closing time mm -hmm. and say, what vegetables are you throwing out? Can mm -hmm. Will you give them to? Mm -hmm. And then they'll take the, the limp and mm -hmm. bad vegetables home and cook them. Mm -hmm. You also have a code word called gift boxing. What oh. was that? <laughs> <laughs> We're going to talk about all the fun stuff, aren't we? <laughs> Well, gift boxing was backing up to the Goodwill box where, you know, kind people had donated, you know, clothing and discarded items that were no longer useful to them. And I would be put inside the little Goodwill box and would hand out the bags of donated items 
to Whoa. somebody that was waiting outside. And you'd just take the bags home? We or would take the bags sort home. No, we would take them home. You couldn't sort right there. It was nighttime. You couldn't really see. Yeah. We did it under the cover of darkness. And I was taught that if somebody came or pulled up to donate items, that they would have to leave, but that I wouldn't be left inside the Goodwill box. Oh, wow. That's But they would come back for me, you know. <laughs> that Did never, that ever happen? It never happened, thank goodness. <laughs> but I, but I knew to just stay quiet and to be inside there and to not, you know, be under the opening where a bag could fall on me. Oh, my word. Oh, that could be dangerous, <laughs> so, couldn't it, as well? How old were you? I was about 10 or 11, just... 12. And so that's how you got your clothing and, mm -hmm. and oh, household yeah, we, items from Yes, that? it was like, we would take those bags home and it was like Christmas, you know, wow. looking at whatever came out of the bags and see who would fit who and, uh -huh. you know, you'd find a little new little shirt or pair of pants that semi-fit and you would be really happy. Wow. So, on the days of gift boxings and gardening, you were going to have some treats. Mm -hmm. On page 137 or thereabouts, you mm -hmm. talk about the day that you found out that your, your father was found dead in his prison cell. And that must have been a very confusing time for you with all that you don't know and, right. and what you do know. How did your family, how did you react? How did your family react to that? And did you know even yet, when he was found dead, did you know yet why he was really in prison? No, I still did not know. When he died, I was 12, and so I was not out yet. And uh -huh. I found out what was go really going on after I had gotten out. Right. So when he passed away, that was shocking to everyone. Everybody. Because we would get on our knees every night and, you know, get him a formal little circle and, and pray for his release. Mm -hmm. And we believed that God would release that God's him. God's going to do it. Yeah. And miraculously, in some cases, we would, you know, believe that that would have happened just like, you know, when Paul, the yeah, chains yeah, were taken right, off of him. And right. So... And they still do that with Warren Jeffs and the FLDS. They still are doing that. But my guess is they would just and, if and they're if they're mm -hmm. if they were raised and taught like we were. Exactly. Then and and there's something wrong with them because he hasn't been set free yet. Oh so my their gosh. faith isn't strong enough. So the yes. guilt trip is the guilt on trip them. was put there. That you know we just had to have greater faith and greater faith that he to would be released. And then when our faith was great enough, then he'd be released. Mm -hmm. You wrote that Ervil had more than 50 children and 13 wives scattered all over Texas, Colorado, California, and Mexico. And Arizona. And Arizona. Though I never lived there my own self. But you lived mostly in Colorado and Texas. Colorado, and Texas, Mexico. and California, oh, Mexico. California, too. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, now, looking back at it, and, and the pro-polygamy stance that we see and hear about so much today. Mm -hmm. How is any man capable of maintaining that kind of a family with proper relationships with that, a family like that? Well, I have yet to talk to anyone who's lived in or been raised in a polygamist family that received proper nour nourishing of their soul and spirit and that proper relationship or, you know, just that yeah. healthy healthy raising of a child mm -hmm. in that environment. Mm -hmm. I have I have not seen that yet. And and the, and and a healthy uh, marriage relationship with the husband Correct. and the wife. Mm -hmm. And and taking all that into consideration is polygamy a viable healthy alternative lifestyle for to be considered to be made legal is it from a loving god? I don't believe that, um, and I haven't seen any practice of polygamy that is healthy, especially not for the children. So I don't believe that polygamy is 
what God demands or commands anyone to mm -hmm. live in order to be in a relationship with him. And so many people, and I agree with you 100%, and so many people say, well, it's between adults, you know, mm -hmm. don't Consenting go in their bedrooms. Adults, they don't, right. you know, we don't need to have be mm -hmm. governed in our bedrooms. But there are more children, thousands of children mm -hmm. are born in polygamy yeah. groups. It is consenting adults, and you know we do live in a free country, so consenting adults can pretty much do what they want. But the practices that I observed and have heard about is it's not always adults. That's right. There's young child, young children, and young girls that are being married off to older men, mm -hmm. and so when they're too young to really understand right. what's going on. And if you're born into and raised in a group like that and groomed exactly. to eventually become that. Is there really consent? Right. Even if you are coercion's not consent. An adult. Exactly right. Okay. In chapter eighteen, you talk about your first experience attending a wedding that was not a wedding <laughs> in the group. Yes. And 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 that impacted you in a, in a special way. Would you explain that? Oh yeah. I was I was watching um, Rena and John um, when they were courting one another, and. He, he wasn't married to any other wives, so just watching them and their budding relationship, watching them flirt with one another, hold hands, and just have normal expression, it was thrilling and exciting <laughs> to observe, and, and you wanted to see what was going to happen next, and uh, what were they going to do next, and oh my gosh, would he kiss her, you know? Uh -huh. <laughs> so, it's so different than the polygamous relationships mm -hmm. you had known previous and right. seen previous. And I had probably read enough books, because I was a voracious reader, so library books were very, libraries were my friend. Mm -hmm. I, I was a very frequent visitor, if, as, many, as many as I could, so I had read enough to know what that seemed, what that felt like, or, and then by the time that happened, there, there was enough shift in our group that we were becoming more and more um, influenced by out the outside mm -hmm, world. Mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. that was helpful. That's a, that's a good thing. Uh, you later talk about a man that you said you, and I quote, hated more than any man in the whole world. Who was that man and why did you hate him so much? Well, he was, it was Dan Jordan. He was my dad's right-hand man, when, even when my dad was in prison. He was the one controlling the group. And with, he controlled your mother. Mm -hmm, and the other wives, and um, his own wives as well. And we worked, and that's when we were living, living in Denver. We worked um, long days, even though we were children. <laughs> mm -hmm. We worked long days, yeah. and we were promised things that were never given to us. And, you know, everybody worked really hard. and. Um, I was a very compliant child, so I didn't get beaten a lot, but other children, other of my siblings that mm -hmm. um, had any kind of, you know, rearing up, uh, you know, against the injustices that were happening, you know, they would just be beaten into submission. Yes. yes. So it was horrific. Yeah. You know, he would scream obscenities at us for not working hard enough and producing enough, and it was, it was horrible and so he and frightening he was yes it was frightening I understand that um, and so your mother he, he was the one that wanted to move your mother back to Colorado after you had been living in Texas yeah, for after a my while. father died 
and uh, you, you, that's when you ran away because you realized you had absolutely no say in that. Oh, I did not want to go back to Denver at all for any reason. Yeah. Back into that lifestyle, life of squalor and poverty and just working horrible just hours. Just slave to after, his. And this was after being exposed to somewhat of a normal life. Right. Even though we were still part of the group, um, it, like I said, we were being more influenced by outside influences, mm-hmm. and so I had gotten a little taste of what it was like outside of mm-hmm. that, what we experienced in Denver. Right. And Denver was just a horrible nightmare for most of the people that weren't part of Dan's family. Dan's family had a different experience. Well, not all of them, but mm-hmm. Dan's children, from, especially from his first wife, they had a very different experience than what we had as Ervil's children yes. in that same environment. Yes, yeah. And I understand that too as well. We were, we were slaves, you know. We, we weren't supposed to ever have any fun. We were just worked, and because we had to work for the kingdom. We had to right. build the kingdom. <laughs> yes. And, and that was economically as mm-hmm. well. I, I understand that. So you ran away. Instead of moving back, you mm-hmm. ran away. You were 13. Mm-hmm. So um, what happened? Did that frighten you? Or, <laughs> well, it was a frightening experience to um, to defy what I knew was my uh, future if I didn't run away. And I had somehow figured out that my mother was planning to move back to Denver, and I didn't want to go. So mm-hmm. I knew um, from observing my sister Lillian and her husband Mark, who were still in a monogamous marriage, one of the very few in our group that was still monogamous, mm-hmm they had resisted the pressure to take additional wives into their relationship Uh and and succeeded in that. So I had observed them, their relationship and and their practices and the things that we were exposed to living in Houston, which was more a little bit more normal than anything I had ever experienced in my life. Uh So when I found out my mom was gonna go back to Denver, I called Lillian and asked her, you know, told her that I didn't want to go and she said these words to me. She said, start walking. Start walking. And, and I did. And, and you're going to have to buy the book to read what happened. It's a very interesting story that happened. Um, and, and thank God that, mm-hmm. that she was willing to help you. I consider her and her husband, Mark, yes. to be the heroes of my story. And I, I would agree. After I've read it, I mm-hmm. would agree that that's certainly pivotal in mm-hmm. what happened. You said that plural wives are especially brainwashed and vulnerable. Would you say that about your mother and how her being brainwashed actually impacted you and your family? Yeah, I don't think my mother would appreciate being referred to as brainwashed and vulnerable. She believes she knows the truth Mm -hmm. and my mother still is in a community that practices polygamy. Mm -hmm. Um, However, just from what I've observed and um, from everybody in my family that has gotten out, the people that have gotten out would describe people that are still in that practice as brainwashed and believing something that's not the truth. You don't know you're brainwashed when you're brainwashed. Correct. So no one that is brainwashed would be able to say they are. And I would say for me, even after I got out, there was a lot of unlearning that had to happen, uh-huh. deprogramming yes. <laughs> that had to happen. Yes, and that can take a while. That it was a long be, process. It can be traumatic. Mm-hmm. You were enrolled in a Christian school. 
mm -hmm. after that, uh, and they helped make sure that you were safe. How did they treat you when they discovered who your father was? Well, they were, a, um, when Mark and Lillian enrolled me in that little Christian school that was just down the road from their home, um, they went and talked to the pastor and, and let them know, you know, what the circumstances were and why I was living with them, even though I wasn't their daughter. So the pastor was aware. The other teachers were made aware mm -hmm. of who, you know, who I was and what my background was. And they were just kind and loving and... They didn't treat you funny because you were Herbal and Mary's no, daughter. No, they taught, it was the opposite. They embraced me mm -hmm. and, and they were kind and loving and, and supportive. Mm -hmm. And so that experience was so different, important. so different than anything I had experienced growing up. Mm -hmm. yeah. I wished I had known something like that when I left the polygamy group. It took me several years to discover that. But it is a very important point in your life. And then there came the most important point when the pastor told you that rather than just knowing about Jesus, you could know Jesus himself. Mm -hmm. Would you want to spend a little time on that? Yeah, I, I, was, I, I, was, I was young. I was almost 14. And my sister allowed me to go to a youth retreat with the youth group, which was a surprise by itself that she allowed me to go. <laughs> and it was there that, you know, during the time where they do the evening service and where they presented the gospel mm -hmm. and invited anyone who wanted to pray to receive Christ as, as Savior mm -hmm. to stay after. And I was just sitting in my seat and I wouldn't get up. And mm -hmm. even though everyone was going off to play and have fun and, and you know, for the evening time, I, I stayed. and. I knew that I was making a decision. Yeah, and the pastor helped you understand exactly. It was what the, you youth were doing. the youth pastor that was there, was and and you know he had over a period of time built a relationship, and so just having experienced the love mm -hmm. and the acceptance. and the graciousness and the acceptance and just the care, yeah, the caring, um, left me very much um, open to receiving a different faith practice than what I had grown up with. And a faith practice that is so different and, and so unconditional mm -hmm. in its love. It, that is big. You made mention in a few times in your book the name of Jesus was often spoken by derision mm -hmm. in your home. And I want to quote again from, again, I don't know if the pages are right, but it's around page 175. You said, still I struggled with actually saying the name Jesus. His name had been spoken with such scorn and derision in my family that whenever I did say it, even to myself, I had to fight off negative thoughts and feelings, imagining my family's mm -hmm. judgment. Yeah. Why was his name said in derision? That's one thing I can't relate to because even in the Kingston group, they didn't yeah. do that. Um, we were taught that um, Christians were um, leading people on a path to hell. But Jesus Christ, why, even in polygamy, they believe in Jesus. Well, the way we, the way we were raised, it was um, Christians that were the enemy. And because Christians believed that Jesus, you know, were, they were saved by grace. And that was spoken with derision, that all oh, those Christians. Oh, and so okay. we were taught that okay. there was, you know, a neg there was a ne very negative connotation associated with being a Christian uh -huh. in our group. And 
So we weren't taught about Jesus. We weren't taught that he died on the cross for our sins. Yeah. We were taught about Joseph Smith. Yeah. We were taught that he had this revelation in the garden. And you know, we were taught those things as opposed to having any kind of teaching about Jesus. And certainly not a relationship. Certainly not a oh, personal kind not of a that. relationship. Not that at all. And there was no full forgiveness. You know, if you if you were guilty of sin, you had to work and, and do penance and right. grovel on the ground for, for forgiveness. If yeah. you, there was no forgiveness immediate like that, like Jesus actually does. Mm -hmm. um, your father had uh, compiled a death list while he was in prison, and we don't want to go into this very deeply at all. We don't have enough time left in this show anyway, but it had far-reaching effects on your mm -hmm. life. Yes, it did. And probably is one of the reasons that you wanted your story to get out because of the fear that that uh, happened after you read the book Prophet of Blood. Right. And you found out that he actually hurt people you loved. Yes. I, I was about 15 years old when I found a copy of the Prophet of Blood and read it and was horrified mm -hmm. and, and left traumatized mm -hmm. knowing that people that I knew as a child were dead people that I cared about, you know, because people moved so often in the middle of the night, you didn't ever know where anyone left or where they ended up. Mm -hmm. And you weren't allowed to ask questions. Yeah. So yeah. the people that were just gone the next morning, you know, I didn't know where anyone was or where they ended and up. So you didn't know. And so I found dead. out they were dead. Yeah. And that was traumatizing, especially the circumstances under which they were killed. Yeah. And you didn't know and about that until you read the book. I wasn't aware of that. We did a show, by the way, um, <coughs> on that book, and Susan Schmidt sat in for Rena uh, and told her story. You can go to April twenty third, two thousand and nine, show number two point one six, if you want to more have more information about that. Um, but when you it, that would be shocking. That that would be uh, traumatizing mm -hmm. in a way to find out that those things are actually going on in your own family. Yeah. Um, we are running out of time for, again. for this show again. <laughs> um, we, we have planned on three shows for, uh, for your interview, and mm -hmm. so we're going to cover some very important parts uh, in part three, and that is how you relate to father and how you relate to who's the dad and who's the father in your mm -hmm. relationship. I know growing up in polygamy, when a, father, a man has so many children, he doesn't father. Uh, and nourish the children like you should. So I look forward to doing that interview. And again, I want to thank you, Anna, for, for coming and spending time with us. Thank you, Doris. And doing this. Um, God has much to say about how parents should raise their children. And although children, uh, discipline is extremely important, it's inciting fear and dread and guilt and neglect are not God's way, nor is withholding love and proper nourishment. These are ways that the polygamy groups control and brainwash their children. The value of children in polygamy groups is based on how they prosper the group. And of course, the more children a man has, the more worshipers he has when he becomes a polygamous god in Mormon heaven. Polygamy groups abuse their children. They are taught to lie. The male children grow up believing the lie that they're greater and more valuable than the females. Anna and I both grew up under that kind of philosophy and treatment, and we want to thank God that he has rescued us, and he will also rescue everyone who will call upon his name for deliverance. Thank you for watching, and we'll see you next time for part three. This has been the audio podcast edition of Polygamy, What Love Is This? 
This program is a production of A Shield and Refuge Ministry and Main Street Church of Brigham City. You can view current and past video episodes as well as download audio episodes of this program at whatloveisthis.tv. If you or someone you know is in need of assistance in leaving a polygamous situation, please contact us. We are here to help. All of our contact information can be found at shieldandrefuge.org or call us at 877-425-9993. If you have any questions or comments about this or any of our other programs, we'd love to hear from you. Write us at email at whatloveisthis.tv. Thanks for listening, and we hope you'll join us again.